Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 reviews plus a brand new look for my website at Quipster.net. That's Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Check it out and let me know what you think of the new look for the site. Today we're going to be continuing on with the second part of a three-part series covering films of the 1980s that adapt DC Comics. Now, technically this is more than a three-part series because I did two Swamp Thing films and a Batman film, and now we're going to get into Superman. Now, this doesn't even qualify as an 80s film, so I'm breaking rules left and right on this show. Superman was from 1978, so pretty close to the 80s, and the reason why I'm including it on this show is because all of its sequels, the three sequels, take place in the 1980s, so I'm considering the series as an 80s series, so we're dipping back into Superman the same way that we covered Star Wars from 1977. Superman, of course, this is the one with Christopher Reeve. It's a big blockbuster for its time. Gene Hackman's also in the film, Margot Kidder, who's playing Lois Lane, Marlon Brando, another big name. In fact, Hackman and Brando were such big stars in the 1970s. Christopher Reeve was pretty much an unknown that they had top billing for this film. Ned Beatty, Jackie Cooper, Glenn Ford, Valerie Perrine, and Mark McClure are also in this film. Richard Donner is the director. He would go on to direct a lot of very well-known films, including The Goonies, Lethal Weapon, and many others. Mario Puzo is credited with the screenplay, but there were a lot of rewrites by a lot of different people over time. David Newman, Leslie Newman, Robert Benton also included, Tom Mankiewicz. It was a a screenplay that was retooled, and I'll get into a little bit more of the reasons why. Now, Superman is, by some people, heralded as the greatest superhero film of all time. It's hard to make that case with so many really good Marvel films that have come out and also the Dark Knight trilogy. But for its era, certainly it is the crown jewel. It's an epic that is befitting a very legendary, larger-than-life comic book deity like Superman. And that's no easy feat for a character that is so well-known and revered by millions the world over. But here, the director, Richard Donner, he pulls it off with barely a hitch. This is the film that would make the previously unknown Christopher Reeve a star He has all of the looks, the grace, the charm, the, yes, vulnerability that you could ever want in a Superman. So it's a surprise in many ways because Superman isn't just a good comic book adaptation. It's also darned good storytelling. It does take its time in the necessary character development, and it makes us care about this man and his need to help humanity. And it's not just this guy who can fly or punch. He's the embodiment of Americana. He's born into proper Midwest values. He fights for truth, for justice, and the American way, as they used to say on the old Superman TV show from the 1950s. Now, the film starts off, and it takes a while to get to the traditional Superman comic that we come to know and love. This one is on the distant dying planet known as Krypton, where the imminent destruction is causing this renowned scientist there, played by Marlon Brando, as Jor-El. He sends his only son, Kal-El, to Earth to survive, to thrive, to grow up among people that look and behave very similar to the Kryptonians. Now, while Superman is on Earth, he embodies superhuman strength, near invulnerability. He has the ability to fly, kind of learns to do that over the course of his adulthood. And and he tries to keep it all under wraps so he's not going to be treated as a, a different entity as the rest of the humankind on Earth. He's adopted by a couple, the, the Kents. They are good-natured farmers. They instill their heartland values into the young boy that they call Clark. And yet a destiny awaits the young Clark Kent. 
So when he grows up, he heads to the city of Metropolis, and and this is a metropolis that has New York City landmarks. I mean, you see the Statue of Liberty, Grand Central Station in this film. So for all intents and purposes, is New York, but we call it Metropolis because that's what it was called in the comic book. And there, Clark Kent lives a dual life: that of Clark Kent, who is this reporter for the Daily Planet, one of the big newspapers in town, and also of Superman, who is a fighter of crime and a savior of humanity. And while he's at the Daily Planet, he meets an attractive fellow reporter, Lois Lane. He develops a crush on her, but she has a crush on the Superman side of him. She doesn't know that Clark and Superman are one and the same. In fact, no one does except for Clark. And despite that, she hardly gives Clark Kent the time of day because he's playing this persona of a very klutzy, nerdy guy. Meanwhile, there's this diabolical master villain in town known as Lex Luthor. He's about to hatch a plot that's going to see millions of people perish for his own profit and his pleasure. And only one man can really stop him, of course, Superman. But can he do it in time? It's kind of the basic setup for the film. It's a long film. I could really go into a lot of details, but I think that's the basic plot that you need to understand going into it. Now, due to the amount of material that screenwriter Mario Puzzo put into his original script... And that script was turned in at a reported 300 pages in length, like a phone book of a script, really. Superman, the first film anyway, was originally slated to be the first part of a two-part movie, with both parts being filmed concurrently. And the ending to this film was supposed to be the ending that was meant as the conclusion of the second part that was supposed to be released the following year. Things changed over time, though. The Salkins, who had purchased the 25-year rights to make the Superman films for a $3 million fee used the back-to-back filmmaking technique in their prior venture when they made The Three Musketeers and its follow-up The Four Musketeers simultaneously, and that ended up working well for them financially, although the production on Superman nevertheless still ballooned in budget astronomically as the shoot progressed, especially as the second film brought in a new director, Richard Lester, who also directed The Three Musketeers, because they wanted to replace the increasingly belligerent about his ideas, Richard Donner, who himself was kind of a replacement for the originally attached Guy Hamilton. Hamilton wouldn't shoot in England because he desired to avoid paying taxes there. And so a lot of reshoots, uh, extensive reshoots, and new script directions had to take place in order to keep all of these ideas together of where the makers of the film really wanted their little burgeoning franchise to go. Although Christopher Reeve might seem today as a very natural choice to play Superman, in fact, for a lot of people, he's the definitive choice to play Superman, the makers of this film, originally called Superman the Movie, wanted a big-name star attached to sell the film. They reportedly looked at Burt Reynolds, and if you can believe it, I'm going to read off a list of names of this hodgepodge of pretty much every big leading man performer in the 1970s, and maybe some not so big. Ryan O'Neill, James Caan, Charles Bronson was considered at some point, John Voight, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Sylvester Stallone even lobbied for the film. Warren Beatty, Nick Nolte, Chris Christopherson. If you can believe this, Neil Diamond was also a consideration at some point. I don't really, I can't even fathom that. Bruce Jenner, who was an Olympic star back then and considered a little bit too young, I suppose, for the role. And then also one of the actors who ended up being cast as one of Superman 2's main villains, Terrence Stamp, who played Zod in Superman 2. I guess he also played it in this first Superman as well, very briefly. So a lanky Christopher Reeve ended up winning out because he delivered a very strong screen test. And of course, although he was ordered to immediately start bodybuilding for this exercise regimen to try to bulk up to a little bit more 
Size, 20 more pounds of muscle to add to his upper torso. He's six foot four, but he was very thin at the time. Coincidentally, David Prowse, who was the man who wore the Darth Vader costume in Star Wars, was the trainer of Christopher Reeve for this film. Meanwhile, there's a cycle of actresses that were also considered for Lois Lane. Those included Stalker Channing, Leslie Ann Warren, Jessica Lange, Susan Sarandon, but eventually Marco Kidder was considered. She was a bit late in the casting process. She was replacing their tentative pick of Ann Archer. That's who they were going to go for, but they were really wowed by Margot Kidder because she seemed to really connect with the light tone of her character and the plucky banter of the comedic aspects of her interplay with Christopher Reeve as Superman. It was very much on point for what they wanted to do with that character. Gene Hackman, also not necessarily the first choice. He mostly scoffed at playing in a comic book movie initially. He thought it would probably ruin his career. He did take home a sizable fee for his role as Lex Luthor in the end. He really did despise having to change his appearance, though, for the role. He ended up getting cajoled into shaving his mustache, but he absolutely refused to shave his head to play Lex, but he eventually agreed a bit reluctantly to wear a bald cap for one scene in the film in order to keep Lex Luthor's appearance in keeping with the traditional look for that character. Now, for those who watch Superman with more religious perceptions in mind, and that does constitute a good section of the people who might discuss Superman as a character today, you know, the origin of Superman really started in the comics as this story that had parallels to the tale of Moses, as you would find in the Bible. I guess not coincidentally, the creators of Superman, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, were Jewish. So for the purpose of this film, it's transformed a little bit more into a distinctly Christian narrative because the powerful father of, I guess, of the heavens, uh, Krypton, he sends his only son, and he actually uses that phrase, my only son, to Earth in this vessel that kind of resembles a Christmas tree ornament. And he becomes the savior of humanity with his seemingly godlike powers. As with Jesus, Kent doesn't really take up his Superman identity to become a savior until his adulthood. And he becomes this miracle worker who cannot lie, cannot, I guess, sin, even if he does mislead other people quite often, especially by donning his alter ego of Clark Kent. And he also can't stand to see the evil that certain men do without action. So certainly you could see that they were trying to make a little bit more of a parallel between Superman and Jesus, as we've come to know from the Bible. The inclusion of Superman's origin in Krypton at the beginning of this film, and it actually takes quite a long time while we're there, that's pretty fascinating. In this day and age, such a lengthy time spent there would be truncated on the notion that audiences, especially of today, would grow impatient for taking an hour for Superman to finally appear in his cape and to do all of the things that we associate with his legend. The scenes on Krypton and of Clark growing up are paced very well and are devoid of some of the bad attempts at humor that mar many of the scenes that take place as we follow Clark Kent and Lex Luthor in Metropolis. The less of the main plot, the better the film is, as far as I'm concerned, as this land grab that Lex Luthor concocts is not really that interesting or even very plausible because he schemes to make the cheap central California desert land worth more by destroying the coastline through this induced earthquake. But he likely would have been caught immediately and probably sentenced to the death penalty because the missiles were obviously stolen and he kind of did it in broad daylight. And because the missiles that induced that earthquake were obviously stolen, launched by this one guy. And the fact that he bought all of the land just coincidentally just before, that's going to be a dead giveaway as to Lex Luthor's culpability. So 
maybe he wants to be caught, and that might explain why he goes well out of his way to draw in Superman, and then explains his plan in full, and essentially makes it very easy for Superman to unravel the entire plan at some point. Now, probably the biggest thing that I tend to not like as much about Superman are these corny jokes that I alluded to, sometimes silly slapstick elements that are sprinkled throughout as a form of comic relief. I think the makers of superhero films had in mind that people really weren't expecting to see superheroes on the screen and take them seriously. Batman, the series from the 1960s, showed that superheroes were very comical and they kind of existed on television in kind of semi-comic form. And in the comic books, which a lot of people attribute to so-called the funny pages. So they had this idea that they needed to put more humor into superhero films at that time. And most of the humor occurs when Lex Luthor is on the screen. He has two less than brilliant sidekicks named Otis and Miss Teschmacher, played by Ned Beatty and Valerie Perrine. They're totally unnecessary for the film, and they're pretty counterproductive to the plotting of the entire story. These attempts at humor do take you away from the moment. And also of the direness of the perilous situations, they temper that a little too much, I think, to try to understand the real gravity of the situation. And even with millions of lives hanging in the balance, it's really hard to take any of it very seriously. Although I will say, just kind of as an aside, in this day and age of 2018, we've seen a number of actual people with a buffoonish personality scheme to gain power, including heads of state. I'm not naming names here, but it's easy to think of. At least one, possibly two, who fall under that category. Now, one nitpick that I've always had for Superman the movie is the inner dialogue for Lois Lane in the romantic flying sequence between her and Superman. Originally, we were supposed to hear an actual song that was sung by Kidder called Can You Read My Mind? But Donner really wasn't feeling it. He didn't think it worked. He didn't think Kidder really could pull off the song anyway. And he opted for the dialogue to be spoken by Kidder as a romantic poem in her thoughts. It's still to this day my least favorite scene of this film, although I will acknowledge that the attempt is admirable as something that's not typically done in films up to that point and pretty much has rarely been done since. But it's also one of the most skipped scenes in DVD history among many Superman fans like me, so... Uh, you know, your mileage will, of course, vary. I'm sure there is a few people out there that really think that scene is very touching and very well done. I happen to have never quite caught into it, unfortunately. Some people might gripe about the dated special effects of Superman these days, but I will say it has to be remembered. These were considered state-of-the-art effects back in 1978. This was a really great-looking film for its time. If you can suspend your disbelief and just consider the intent of these special effects instead today, you're going to be rewarded with a very well-done story and immensely thrilling action underneath that. And sure, there are quite a few logic loopholes in this film. I mean, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane happening to be in the middle of the action where disasters are taking place on the other side of the country from where they typically do their beat, that defies belief. You have questionable physics here. I mean, Superman uses his arm and body as a replacement for a missing railroad track. That surely would have still resulted in a derailment of that train. And even some events completely contradict all scientific rationale. There's an event in the finale in which Superman performs an act. I won't go into spoilers here, but he tries to save the life of one particular person that in reality, that act would have killed everyone on Earth and probably just destroyed Earth in the process. But hey, it's a comic book movie after all. The main thing to take away from that moment is... Superman truly loves people and specific person above all else. He values the words of his stepfather to be 
a help to humanity, and he takes that over the admonition of his biological father to not interfere with the course of human events, and sitting back and taking all of that in as a fantasy spectacle with some visual metaphors, I think that's perhaps the best approach for maximum entertainment value for a Superman. Now, the screenplay by Mario Puzo, he was a red-hot writer in the 1970s. He, of course, wrote the book and also the screenplay for The Godfather, along with Francis Ford Coppola. He agreed to do the work for $350,000, which is quite a lot of money back then. He also would take 5% of the profits. That tome of a screenplay, it went through several waves of rewrites, as I mentioned at the start of the show. The creators felt that he was deviating too much from the source material in that screenplay. They kept Puzo's screenwriting credit to sell the movie, even though by most accounts, Tom Mankiewicz, who was credited as a creative consultant for the film, he ended up drafting the final script in order to remove some of the rampant campiness that was brought in by revisions done by screenwriting couple of David and Leslie Newman. John Williams' score, that's an unbelievable score, one of his best and probably one of the best in cinema. Certainly, I would probably argue the best score for a superhero film still. All of this adds up to top-notch entertainment all of the way. It's chock full of classic memorable scenes. And certainly, as far as iconic imagery goes, there are few films that do it better than Superman. So if you're a fan, or even if you've never heard of Superman before, that's absolutely hard to imagine. This is a terrific epic film. It seems to get better with age in a lot of ways, even though the effects are dated. From a storytelling standpoint, you know, it's about the characters. It's not about the special effects, like so many blockbusters are today. And like Spider-Man did for a more modern generation back in the early 2000s, I think Superman here shows that heroes are not necessarily born from brute strength and superhuman abilities alone. They are our heroes because they use these powers for what's good and what's right. And as strong as they might be, their physical prowess pales in comparison to the strength of their morals and their, their convictions. And that is what makes Superman such an extraordinary superhero that has lasted the test of time. It's for his inner strength as well as his outer strength. He's someone you can believe in through and through. So I'm going to give Superman, the movie, from 1978, three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that it is a good film. I would definitely recommend it if you like Superman. Of course, you've probably already seen it. If you enjoy the superhero films of today, I would tell you to go look back and keep an open mind because it does take a while before you see Superman on the screen. You know, it's not like today where there's titillation factor all along. This really tries to put the building blocks in motion to get you to care about Superman's overall story, his overall arc. By the time you get to see him on the screen, I think it works really well because of that. And if you just like really good movies, I think that it's a good film. Even if you're not somebody who typically goes out of your way to see superhero films, I think this is one of those exceptional ones that will entertain people who are not necessarily in that camp. So three and a half stars out of four is what I give Superman. As far as what I'm going to be continuing with next week, it's hard to talk about one without the other because they were made to be bookends to each other. I'm going to go to the actual 1980s, in fact, 1980 itself, for Superman 2 on my next episode of Around the World in 80s Movies. I hope you'll join me for that next week. Before I go today, I do want to mention that I do another podcast that covers new films, including superhero films. I just reviewed Ant-Man and the Wasp, so I do encourage you to check out the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Quipster is spelled with a W, and you can find it anywhere that you're probably listening to this right now. Do a search through that platform, and you'll find the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Until next week, thanks, everyone, for joining me on this trip around the world many, 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 many times, <laughs> sometimes backwards, 
on Around the World in 80s Movies. 